first story deals with a subculture of heavy metal music that some feel is sending a dangerous message to your kids. The forces of evil on the dark side of devil rock. And I want to talk tonight about the devil and demons and witches and wizards. And we just mix it up with hardcore and aggression and come out with something that we face an original sound. Loud, fast, heavy, you know. Well, what do you got? What do you got? And welcome back to another episode of Riff Worship, where we discuss all things of the riff, what makes a riff, how a riff. And I'm joined again by my co-host, Austin Paulson, the pride of Chicago, Illinois, Lower Indiana, as I like to call it on occasion. Uh, And then we are joined by the oldest man on the planet, Justin Swindle. How are you guys doing? I'm just as close to Indiana as Austin. That's, yeah. That's probably, yeah, that's true. Like very, probably closer, yeah. honestly. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's very well, true. Which is not something I'd like to be personally, but. <laughs> we are uh, an Indiana sandwich, you and I. Oh boy. <laughs> that's a t- terrible sandwich. It, at least you guys like grew up like around Indiana. I grew up in Arkansas. Like. That's it's just, what. <laughs> it's, the arm, it's the armpit of the South. It's far worse than Indiana. There's the middle finger of the South. That is true. That is something only a few of us are ever going to get. Maybe the United States, the, the South is pretty f***ed up looking because every time someone's like, oh, that's the armpit of the South. Or this is the middle. Like, what? How does <laughs> where where are things at? Like, it's it just it's just a blob that's like, kill me. Fucking Cronenberg blob. Yeah. The South is a Cronenberg blob. I was going to say it was Joseph Merrick. Like, just all <laughs> knotted up. I am a human being. It's anyway. <laughs> anyway. You guys been okay. Everything's good. You know. Yeah, sure. We, yeah. Everything's all right. Uh, this is already going off the rails. Wow. How fitting for the title. <laughs> the, yes. How, tie in. Um, I've gathered both of you guys here today to talk about a record I have been wanting to dive into for quite some time. Uh, if we can even call it a record, uh, it's an 18 minute long song, which is something I don't think any of us truthfully like, um, you know, we, we've always been one to go like, do you really need to write a song that long? Uh, I mean, yeah, you've got bands like Bell Witch, you've got bands like Sleep, uh, obviously Rush did it many years ago. Um, Mastodon, you name it. Different artists have created really long songs that have worked. And uh, I truthfully believe that this is one of those long songs that works. Um, and this is uh, No Effects is the Decline. Um, kind of a weird suggestion from me, I would think, because you wouldn't really think of No Effects and riffs. Um, well, you're a weird until guy. I'm a very weird man. Uh, you know, <laughs> You know, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. There's three of us. We're all fucking weird. You know, you're, you're one of us. Speaking of uh, no effects and riffs, one of the few, um, one of the few sources that you cited in research of this album, Mike, in fact, said a riff doesn't make the song. Correct. Mm. Yes. How do you feel said, about that? He's, you know, I don't have to necessarily agree to what anybody ever says. I am a human Especially being. Especially not. <laughs> uh, Mike. Not even that. There's some things I do agree upon that he says, but that's just not one, you know. Um, but when I heard this track, um, there are riffs all over this thing. 
And in particular, there are bass riffs that all over this thing. Um, some pretty, pretty big ones and pretty intricate sounding ones at that. And I, when I heard this song for the first time, uh, that was the first thing I latched onto is how the song opens up and it's immediately into a riff. Right. Um, and this song was no easy feat to write either, uh, from the research I've done. Um, I am probably a late kind of a late catch on to no effects. It was early part of the pandemic and I felt the need to like dive down the rabbit hole and start listening to these different records. I'd never heard. I'd obviously heard punk and Drublick um, years and years ago and thoroughly enjoyed that record and finally felt the need to like listen to basically the, the band's whole catalog, which is pretty vast uh, starting from their very first record all the way up to the record they had released by that time, which I think may have been uh, like the, an album with a coaster on it or something like that. Um, and I found that there were a few of their records I really liked and some of them were a little more, you know, it, it, meh for, for lack of a better word. Um, not my thing, but I realized that I latched onto the songs. The songs are really well written. Um, it, he's definitely a guy that spends time when it comes to creating these songs. And I like his knack for lyricism. Uh, definitely has some weird, intricate lyrics. I mean, there's lines in here that says Jerry only stayed a couple months, mm-hmm. which I was like, that's, that's funny. Like I'll give him that. Um, I mean, there's lines, uh, I mean, there's a song called the bruise in, um, on punk and Drublick that is about a group of like Hebrew skinheads, like going around, just like tearing this town apart. And I think it's great. Uh, psycho Meshuganas is one of the lit lines in that song. Um, He's got a knack for lyrics. I mean, if you listen to the album, uh, The War on Errorism, there's, he is taking the piss out of everybody in any political party on that album, as well as like uh, Davey Havoc, uh, multiple other like members of big bands at that time, um, the whole nine. Uh, I, I love Fat Mike's lyricism. Uh, I think it's great. I think there are certain things that he will sing about that will uh, definitely make you kind of look at it like you're watching like the Antichrist. Um, <laughs> with how you're just going, Oh Jesus, like, come on, man. Um, chaos, right. It's, it's, yeah, it, it's like that. He's, he's definitely not shielding anybody from what he writes about. Or, I mean, he's also very aching to talk about any and everything that interests him. I mean, in the, I listened to an interview about this, uh, this EP we're talking about, and he went on a rant for three to five minutes about sexual preferences and things like that. Um, he's got quite a few songs that dig into that. I mean, one of the one of NoFX records was called SNM SNM Airlines, uh, which is he's got a thing about BDSM. He's big into it, and he makes it very known. Um, but roll. my question for you guys is: um, I came late to this band. When was the first time you heard No Effects? If you guys have, and if it, it maybe it was this me suggesting it. What was the first time you heard No Effects, and what were your first uh, takes on hearing the decline? I think this is probably the first No Effects album I've listened to. Somehow, uh, somehow, I think I latched on to like '80s hardcore and stayed with hardcore through the '90s and 2000s, but like kind of ventured away from punk like the genre right. uh i never really like got into a line a lot of 90s like kind of three chord punk bands uh i only started listening to like 
you and I have talked about um, anti-flag, which I guess I wouldn't suggest anyone listening right. to now that shit has come out about that person. But I didn't start listening to them until like I was 20. Uh, and I kind of never really latched on to like bad religion or no effects or anything right. like that. So this is kind of my first venture into no effects. When I think of this band, I think of video games. I think there is an era of maybe the early 2000s that, you know, extreme sports was king. You had a lot of skateboarding video games. You had a lot of snowboarding video games. A lot of them have pretty similar soundtracks, a lot of pop punk and skate punk and stuff. So when I think of no effects, I often think of Thug One. Uh, I had like Pro Skater 4 and I had Thug One and the separation of church and skate was on mm-hmm. thug one. Um, I don't think I, I didn't, I didn't really get into this band. Um, I've been aware of them, you know, kind of what swindle is saying uh, that like era of like nineties kind of skate punk. I think the closest thing that I really ever got to was probably the descendants or, right. um, you know, green day even. Right. And, I I was much more into, you know, older heavy metal and stuff like that by this point. So I think I leaned into that. I was into the Ramones. I was into Black Flag, but I never really quite got into this area of punk music, I think, or right. this era, uh, maybe later, but not really. It's It, it really just wasn't my thing. Um, it is cool to kind of step out of your comfort zone and, and kind of look at this. This is a very, this is an anomaly uh, yep. for this band. I I I think the the quote that stuck out to me in kind of preparation for this was that Fat Mike said we're the most improved band out there. That, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is very funny, you know. And maybe I need to go now go back and listen to the EPs and stuff because he, if you listen he, to those first two records, oh, it's very evident. Yeah, so that's cool. I like that. So I I'd like to get more context. You know, I didn't really go back much further. This is really kind of the first thing that yeah. I listen to in in full like again i've probably heard songs over the like you show me linoleum and stuff like that you've definitely played stuff around me but i can't say that anything's really latched on so right when you presented an 18 minute punk rock opera you know that's interesting i definitely want to check it out and see what that's about um can you think of any other punk rock operas out there you know is that a thing the the one that the one that comes to mind yeah, and this is, is Jesus. Far, Jesus of Suburbia. It's Jesus of Suburbia, which yeah. this the decline is far better to me. But absolutely, you know, American Idiot was a huge record. Yep. I was in elementary school when that thing came out. My dad had a copy of that record before that, I had a copy of that. There record. you go. So if that tells you anything, but you know, can you think of any other punk rock operas? So the only other thing I can think of is a song that directly influenced. This song, which is a song by the subhumans called, I think, Cradle to the Grave, um, which I only listened to in preparation for this podcast. I'd never listened to it before. I had tried to listen to the subhumans many years ago, and they're a little too British for me. Um, Like, it's cool. That song's very inventive sounding. Like, you can hear kind of like some Killing Joke-esque stuff, kind of that kind of um, (laughs) that later era of punk, I guess. You know, Swindle does not like British people, FYI. Um, and, and it, we don't and we don't do well over there anyway, so it's fine. We yeah, don't, that, not that we true. do well here, but yeah. we, <laughs> <laughs> we do even worse. <laughs> As I was saying, from cradle to a grave, that's that's the only other thing. Um, 
I could think of. That's also the name of a very great DMX movie, I believe. Um, I think that's the one where he rides a quad through a window. Hell yeah. Come on. But that's the only, that's the only other like punk rock opera, something that as long as this song could be. I missed out on the whole skate punk thing. I think that's got to do with maybe obviously Austin, you're, decades younger than swindle and i um but that's something (laughs) swindle and i missed out on too because we are maybe if we were born in like 85 as opposed to 90 and 89 we probably would have been head you know dove head first into like the whole skate punk thing we also am like i am the most clumsy human being in the world i'm never going to be on a skateboard i fell off a skateboard one time and said that's enough um and I wanted no part of it. And I didn't watch a whole lot of skate videos. That obviously came later with like CKY and Jackass. Uh, and that oh, was yeah. for that was just for the slapstick uh, slick slapstick aspect of that stuff. Uh, you know, I have bursitis. <laughs> well, I think it's hard to you bring that up. I think that the also the maybe the hurdle in getting into a lot of that stuff is a lot of it does sound the same to me. There's not a r- lot. Yeah, of I can see like, that. And not that it necessarily has to reinvent itself or like be vastly different. Right. I, I think when I would have those video games on, it worked because it wasn't really like, I don't know. It's it, some of those things definitely turned me on. Like I heard a lot of, you know, metal and punk rock songs. Right. Through those video games. For Ted the first Kennedy's time. The Clash. Absolutely. Yep. Goldfinger uh, Primus. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Goldfinger and Primus. Goldfinger's those on the, the first Primus on the first Tony Hawk and uh, Dead Kennedy's on the first Tony Hawk. Police truck? Police truck, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah, so yeah. that's great. I remember, I remember dropping into that fucking half pipe and hearing Jerry yeah. was a race car driver and losing my <laughs> shit. <laughs> this is all again declining Kermit. into just nonsense. But yeah, some sometimes I feel like it's hard because a lot of it sounds the same. So you know, maybe the the ones that are very good are very there's there's also like a wave of copycats that are just doing yeah. the same shit. So but clearly this band, you know, kind of stands out in that they're able to write, you know, 18 yeah. minute tracks. And, you know, the history of this is is pretty wild. I know there. How do you do it? How do you like sit down and write a song like this in an era where, you know, Pro Tools is not a thing? As far as I know, this was recorded directly to tape. It's pretty wild. So, you know, there's talent there. There's something there. There's songwriting capabilities within Fat Mike. So I'm curious to hear, you know, maybe some of the research that you dug up on that. So to kind of touch on the whole, like, I am so ignorant to like punk rock and even a lot of hardcore. Uh, I am. I'm definitely more in the realm of like, if it's a hardcore band that sounds like a 90s metal band or more influenced with that, I'm going to be more interested. and with this band, it I was 30, truthfully, by the time I got into this band and I dug the whole catalog. But there's a certain era of this band's catalog from like 97 to maybe 03 might be the best years of this band. Uh, they had an album called So Long and Thanks for All the Shoes, which came out in 1997, which is a perfect record, um, has every aspect of their songwriting on it. Um, I mean, from like reggae stuff on up to just like, I mean, the opening track of that album is called It's My Job to Keep Punk Rock Elite. And that is very tongue firmly planted in cheek. It's like a minute and 15 seconds long. It's great. Uh, It's a great record. It's 30 minutes long. Um, Pump Up the Volume, which is the album that came after The Decline. Another fantastic record. 
Uh, and then you had the war on errorism, which came out in 03, which is a very political leaning record to a point that like fat Mike started putting out these uh, compilations called the rock against Bush compilations on his uh, fat records uh, label. And those were a big deal, massive deal. Uh, there's actually a great, there's actually great live footage of, I believe no effects playing Conan around that same mm. era. And they just, they're just bagging on Bush and Cheney and uh, all sorts of them there. Uh, but this this is the era of the band that really stuck out to me. Um, you know, Punk and Drublick, great record, great early 90s kind of punk record, all like Rancid, Green Day, uh, Smash by Offspring. Uh, the album after that, which is Heavy Petting Zoo, is not good. Uh, even Mike himself has said like, yep, yeah, that, that record really doesn't need to exist. I spent too much time worrying about how the sound, song should sound as opposed to just letting the songs write themselves, which completely contradicts what he said when he wrote this thing. So um, the writing of this song, you know, it's not a record. It's a song. It's an 18 minute long song. Um, it was written over six months and it was basically using riffs that he had compiled over, I believe, a two to four year period uh, during this. And he basically has stated in the interview we listened to that, you know, I just had riffs. You know, you, you, you're out on tour. You have a tape recorder. Think about that. You have a tape recorder. You're just recording melodies and riffs that you have. You just put them on there and then you see what you have at the end of a tour. And he's like, they're just riffs. You know, as Swindle said earlier, uh, a riff doesn't make a song good necessarily. Um, I don't necessarily agree to that, but it's also coming from two different perspectives. Um, I think when you get to the bare basics of what like traditional heavy metal is, uh, and heavy metal adjacent music, which this is obviously a more punk rock thing and more punk rock adjacent. Um, maybe there is more songwriting structure. It comes to that. Whereas in the heavy metal side of things, you can get one riff and you can write a whole song around that. And the riff will always be the center point. I mean, that's the hook in a, in a heavy metal song. Uh, I mean, you look at songs like uh, inner Sandman, symphony of destruction, hammer smash face, you know, rain and blood. The riff is the thing that you're thinking of. Whereas maybe with like punk tracks, um, on occasion, yes, you do get a punk track that has a lot of riffs. Uh, is it the, uh, it's not poison idea. Is it poison ruin? That was the more recent, like, I mean, that thing's got riffs all over it. That's a great record. Um, yeah. is that, is that the Harvest. name of the record? Yeah. I mean, that, that's a really cool record. I think TSOL had riffs. I think, uh, the dead Kennedys had riffs. Um, the fucking damaged, everybody knows yeah. like the TV party riff. Yeah. And I mean, like, uh, the opening of the album. Yeah, uh, I, I can't think of. The oh, name Rise of Above. Song. I Rise mean, above, you look at yeah. you look at Rise Above. Look at uh, look at Bad Brains. Look at um, hell. You mentioned it earlier, um, but I'm drawing. I mean, I, I digress. Um, I think punk rock can have riffs, albeit maybe heavy metal is more centric to the riff. Maybe hard rock, heavy metal, and um, Swindle Austin. You guys are definitely far more proficient in knowledge of punk rock than I am. Um, you know, I a lot of the punk bands were kind of formed in, especially like hardcore, uh, especially that like first wave hardcore was more, they basically formed bands because they didn't want to necessarily be lumped in. They were tired of hearing heavy metal music, hard rock music, overblown song structures, you know, 14 minute guitar solos and drum solos at, um, you know, arena shows or anything like that out of a lot of frustration. And it's remarkable to think that, you know, Hardcore started in what, 83, if you really think about it, probably sooner, 81. Um, 
you know, and then you look almost 20 years later and it's like, let's do an 18 minute long track. Um, no effects has been around since 83. It's an interesting one. Cause yeah, it's an 18 minute, you know, journey of, you know, compiled riffs over a six month period, but there's also feeling it's a lot of different yep. movements and themes. Oh my God. Uh, not a lot of the parts, you know, little uh, to nothing repeats. Nothing really repeats. There's, like I said, themes, there's things yes, that the are similar that yeah. kind of play out through the song, but they're, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of one point A to point B kind of yep. flowing movement. Uh, there's lots of different dynamics throughout the song. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it's kind of hard to write a song like that and yeah. not it, and it not just be like, you know, a sludge or doom riff where it's like, yeah, the same thing over and yeah, over again you're, you're just For it uh, to make sense in 18 yes. minutes is a very difficult thing to do there's a line from um there's a quote from one of the guys from floor who was also in torch uh and he said uh it's intimidation through repetition is is kind of the semblance of when it comes to like sludge and like heavy metal music right um but yeah there's a motif on this song throughout the whole thing uh and that's why I presume it took him six months to write the song. He wanted it to be good. And a big standpoint from the research I did is that he wanted all the parts to be good. He didn't want any fluff. He didn't want any filler. He wanted it all to be good and for it all to make sense. And that's what really struck me about it is it does like every single part has a reason. Um, every single part makes sense to the song. It's not just like, here's a part for the sake of having a part because we know we don't know what else to do it all kind of flows pretty well. It's not just going up and down. It, it, it actually moves and flows. Um, you know, this is a band that was influenced by the likes of the subhumans, bad religion, um, RKL, which is a pretty crazy sounding band. If you've ever listened to them, um, you know, they were, they were influenced by their peers at that point. Um, you know, you, you get to like 99 and they're one of the legacy acts on like warp tour at that point. I mean, Fat Mike and his wife at the time, Aaron, created a record label called Fat Rec, uh, Fat Rec Chords that's still around to this day, still putting out records. Uh, I mean, I think Fat Records has probably, during that era, helped punk rock become this huge thing, helped it stay with the Warped Tour crowd, helped, helped all of that. Think of like, you could probably look at any larger band at some point and see that they spent a little bit of time on Fat Records with that. The document that we made for this said there was over 300 releases for the record. Yeah. That was like a, uh, like a number I saw where it was like, yeah, you know, by, I don't know when that like stat was made, but I had seen like, yeah, over 300 releases on that label alone. So, and yeah, and I'm sure that's on the light side at that. Um, the funny thing about this record or this EP was no effects was signed to epitaph records when this came out. So epitaph put out, so long and thanks for all the shoes and pump so up the value. Is that that bad religion dude's label, right? Brett Gerwitz. Yep. Yeah. That's his label. Yep. Um, and they were releasing the, the mainstays. So I guess Mike was like, you know what? Might as well put it out. It, it, you know, this is marketing hell. If I put this thing out, like how are we going to sell this thing? An 18 minute long punk song. Um, so I'll put it out, you know, worst case that happens, no one buys it. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's a boutique thing. Right. Um, but it is a, it's a mini punk rock opera and it's, 
not as simple as just saying it's a punk rock song for the sake of being a punk rock song. It's, it's, it's a pretty deep song. Um, you know, 99 was kind of weird, a weird year for like politics, right? It was the Clinton administration. You know, I was fucking nine years old. Swindle was nine years old. You were three. Is that right? Uh, no, yeah, you would 99. Been f- I, I was in kindergarten in nine. Yeah. You were five. Yeah. So that, that really says a lot. It's like, you know, the U S was doing okay at that point. Um, I don't know about the rest of the globe. Um, and then basically Mike was like, I didn't really know what to sing about during that era. Everything was going pretty well for us. I was doing pretty well. Um, so he just looked at like how cruel and like how ignorant American people were and how American people are. And if you look at the lyric, I did have the lyric sheet pulled up, but it is like pretty, it's pretty in depth to take a look at that. Uh, but basically it's like, people are stupid is <laughs> the, the simplest. I mean, the opening line is, uh, where did all the stupid people or where are all the stupid people from? That That's yeah. the opening line. Um, but to get back to the recording process of this, um, Mike wrote the song 18 minutes. Um, he and the drummer, um, Eric Sandlin smelly as we will refer to him because there's two Eric's in the band, um, recorded it though. Um, basically Mike said, you can't write an 18 minute song, give it to your band and have them and expect them to memorize it. Cause this was tape. We're talking about this. This wasn't punch-ins. Uh, I mean, you could do punch-ins, but it was a little bit different. You could do overdubs as, as opposed to punch-ins. Um, so they recorded, they split it into 16 parts to record it. Um, so basically Mike played most of the guitar. He played the bass, did vocals. Um, I'm sure the, uh, other members of the band, uh, El Jefe and Eric Melvin, I'm sure did, you know, guitar, you know, guitar layers and stuff for it as well. The whole band was part of it. And what, I, what I really appreciate about this band is they're not really, you know, there's no, there's not a huge ego to them of like, oh yeah, let's just get this guy from this other band to play these parts. Cause he's really good at them. You know, there's some great guest spots on here. Bands I'm not familiar with in the least bit. I just thought it was cool. Uh, I believe uh, the background vocals on the whole record are done by Spike Slauson, who is in Me First and the Gimme Gimmies. So like all the weird, all the harmonies you hear are him. Uh, I mean, all the ska parts are done by um, Nate Albert, who is in the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. Uh, and then you've got, I believe the trombone is played by a gentleman named Lars Nylander, who is in a band called Shank and Pickle, um, which I, again, I've never heard of. I've never heard of any of, like, I know about me first in the gimme gimmies. Like I've heard all those covers, um, but I'm not familiar with any of these other acts, but it's really cool to see. It's like, oh yeah, these are just my buddies, but I want them on this 18 minute long song that I'm writing. Um, production was handled by Fat Mike and, uh, Ryan Green, which is funny because Ryan Green's like, you know, credentials read as he did Punk and Trublick, he did Strung Out Records, he did Propagandi Records, but he also worked pre-production for Megadeth's Countdown to Extinction. My God. Which, which is <laughs> fucking hilarious. Uh, what a tie-in. But, but uh, this album was recorded at Motor Studios in San Francisco, California, which Mike and Ryan Green co-owned at one point. I'm sure there's some, I'm sure that that studio does still exist. Um, but the writing was, I, I don't necessarily know how long it took to write, to record the actual release, but I know six months of writing it, 
figuring out where the lyrics needed to go, all the parts, how they needed to flow into each other. I could only imagine recording this thing had to be a tedious act of, all right, we got to get this part. How many takes are we doing? How much money are we spending on tape? Uh, I believe Mike even describes that at certain points in the production, like multiple members of the band are on the board, like passing faders in, bring them <laughs> up, bring them down to make things sound like right and make it sound good. He's like, that was, you know, that's how you recorded back then. Um, but it's, it is a mixed bag on this thing. Like it's not just really one style. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not just like, here's, four guys playing four chords, which um, you mentioned Jesus Suburbia earlier. That sounds more like that to me. That sounds like three guys went in, recorded, and just played like pretty, you know, rudimentary like rock and roll, right? Yeah. And it's it sounds good. It's a cool song. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's it fine. makes sense. It flows fairly well. Mm-hmm. But I think this one flows a little bit better. Yeah, there's just, if I, I haven't listened to that song in, in some time, so you know, maybe I would need a refresher, but I, I think you're definitely right in saying that it sounds like those three, maybe four people mm-hmm. got on record and recorded their instruments. There's not, uh, I don't remember there being, you know, horn sections and, yeah. you know, all these sorts of different things going on, harmony layers like this. Uh, there's a lot of really cool dynamics with this song and, you know, that, that definitely helps with an 18 minute runtime. You want to keep it interesting. You want, yeah you know, it, it slow down, you know, changes in tempo, all sorts of things. So it definitely does that. So there's no way that in the recording of this song that they ever intended to play it live. I I just don't think there was any intention of that ever happening because most people that record an 18 minute long track, that's kind of like an artistic endeavor. That's like, we're just going to put it out. If people like it, they like it. So what? Um, I mean, it was almost 10 years before they played it live. And matter of fact, it was, some show and some little club that was getting uh, shut down because of a storm coming through. And they're like, all right, we have time for one more song. And like Mike leans over to the drummers, like we're playing decline. (laughs) (laughs) Which is wild that you would just randomly throw that out there and remember how to play the damn thing, you know, having never like prepared for it really, unless that's like part of the warm up or, you know, rehearsals and stuff. I don't, I don't know. I've read, I've read their book. Uh, and there's not a whole lot that goes in depth about that. Um, Eric Sandlin is a great drummer. Um, I I've heard him on every record. He doesn't done a, doesn't do a ton of flashy stuff, but he's consistent. Like he's, they've even said in like recordings, he's pretty good with like one or two takes and then he's out. Like, it's just, he's that good. He comes in, records his stuff quick. He's good. He's, he's precise. So I'm sure this is, it would be weird to think they're like a, uh, like a Springsteen kind of thing going on where it's like hey there's a chance he's gonna pick some song out of the catalog we haven't played in 20 years so be prepared and just know it or just like work your way through it it's like what a nightmare um i mean that obviously works for like three chord kind of traditional folk uh structured like rock and roll songs like that but maybe like skate punk old school hardcore probably not gonna work as well so that guy's gotta be pretty good to be able to like go okay we're playing an 18 minute long song with little to no breaks all right we're doing it no effects is just like fugazi i was literally just about to say that (laughs) shit i was like i was thinking okay no set list they just fucking go into just start a song yeah i was literally thinking that the entire time (laughs) that's awesome you go into a show right 
you're going to have some beers. You're going to like stomp around, do whatever the hell you do. Um, and it's like a punk show and it's like, Hey, um, so the next song we're playing is 18 minutes long. Like, how do you keep, how do you keep their attention? Obviously this, by this point, like no effects had a diehard fan base. You know, they'd been around since 83. They were elder statesmen by this point. Um, the Klein came after probably their most successful period from like 94 to like 98. Um, you know, they're doing well. Like everybody's got cars in the garage. Everybody's got a house. Everybody's able to pay their kids through college, that kind of thing. You know, um, what, you know, what other type of like artistic, you know, chance do you take than writing an 18 minute long song and present it to a crowd that is used to minute and a half to like maybe a four minute long song and four minutes is pushing it um, on some of these things. Like, you know, you look at like punk and drub, like there's, I think the longest song, maybe three and a half minutes on there. Um, or you look at the album that came before it so long. And thanks for all the shoes. It's, it's a short record. Like even the ska, like reggae song on there is like three and a half minutes. Um, so you present this to this crowd and you just go, you know what? If they don't like it, fuck them. Right. Uh, I think that's the benefit of like making music is obviously you hope that you put music out that you like and you want to play. And if people like it, so be it. Right. That's, that's the big deal. Um, and Mike is, Mike's not a dumb person. He's obviously a business owner. He was able to start uh, fat records. Uh, he's obviously able to keep a band afloat for 40 years at this point. Um, he also has a degree in political science, I believe, which makes sense for the, you know, the song, certainly some of the lyrical concepts on the song, obviously like how insensitive Americans are, uh, touches on the prison system, uh, and how it's just created to keep people of color in jail. Um, I mean, it even goes as far as like some of the influence for the, the song itself was like Robert Downey Jr. getting arrested for his drug possession charge in his own hotel room. Uh, and I believe in the interview, it's like Mike was just kind of going on. It's like, he wasn't harming anybody. He was in his own room, minding his own business. Yes, he was doing drugs, but he was minding his own business and cops at the door, bing, bang, boom, you're going in, you know? Yes. Robert Downey Jr. Going to jail for six months is probably vastly different than, you know, some guy down the street, you know, um, living in poverty, going to jail, vastly different thing but it all kind of circles the same drain uh, when it comes to that. Um, but I mean, he was hitting on like a lot of these political topics he's hitting on. You could release this song today and it still holds up because we haven't changed. Uh, I mean, there's a fucking Eisenhower quote in here in, in the song. Uh, I believe it's the man who used to speak because Eisenhower is referred to as the man who used to speak. Uh, I don't know any of this. I'm just an ignorant fucking chucklehead from Arkansas. Like it's, it's hearing this and reading about the lyric concept is like, Oh, okay. This is like knowledge that I can hold on to. And it's not just like another cool song. Um, I mean, gun control, police state training. I mean, uh, there's a whole bit in the, the song talking about you shoot to kill or something like that. Uh, there's a lot of lyrics tying in with that. Um, you know, I mean, there's the great line, uh, I believe it's, there's the line about he changes it up and he just changes a couple words and it all almost sounds like the same line. Um, something about that's my first kill. And then under the brush down in the weeds is my, uh, the body of my brother, Will or William. And it just keeps kicking in. And it's like, God, 
I, I like that creativity. I'm sure it is very hokey when it comes to like songwriting, but I love that he can spin a line, use the same melody, put different lyrics in a line, but it still almost sound identical to that because it makes you go back and go, did what's he saying now? Like what's different? I mean, there's even references to like uh, Wayne from the MC five getting arrested, uh, you know, a $20 bag, um, got him like 10 years in prison or something like that. Uh, I mean, there's lines about that. Um, he's digging deep for, and for a guy that's just like a, you know, considered just a drunk and a punk rock band. Like it's, this is pretty deep shit. Uh, I'm not the most politically sound human being, but I know you and Swindle absolutely are and Swindle more so than probably the both of us. Uh, and it, you know, it, this rang a bell with me hearing it and going like, okay, you know, this is, this is something that would definitely fit in today's environment with releasing like, you know, hardcore records, punk records, anything like that. Uh, obviously it was written, it was written from the perspective of a man that was very wealthy. Um, but still nonetheless, digging in the politics here, big time, you know, um, I know what I took away from it with the lyrics, you know, did, did you guys take anything from it? I mean, from first time to listen, it, uh, reminded me a lot of, um, kind of like dead Kennedy's lyrics. Uh, yes. And that dead Kennedy's lyrics were very political, but also kind of like the tone of them. Cause Jello was kind of a fucking asshole and his lyrics <laughs> yeah. were just like snotty and like making fun of people for not being as, I don't know, like smart as right. he thought he was, but I don't think, I don't know. I'm not trying to say that the lyrics on this album are like, making fun of people or being like you're stupid but it's kind of like the same nihilism kind right. of to me that that kennedy's put off yeah it is very like sarcastic it's certainly got like a humor to it with you know a, a scathing humor i guess but i would agree i don't i didn't get like the impression when you you know like when you listen to like jello talk or, or anything yeah. like that where it's like you know he's like very above Everyone there's else. an arrogance so feel, to jello yeah for Whereas sure like yeah. mike doesn't you know, necessarily have that he definitely feels like a like a just kind of like blue collar voice of like yeah things are dumb and people are really stupid but you know i'm also not like <laughs> you know what i mean like i can who am i to judge too but yeah. like i don't know things are definitely not good when uh dylan when you were talking near the beginning of the episode about how he like bags on everybody i was gonna like jokingly say that he's the matt stone and trey parker of punk rock i mean that's that's not far off that makes complete sense he has he has bagged on his buddies bands um i mean i i believe he has there wasn't beef but he's definitely made there have been jokes made by that whole band i mean their whole stage banter is like just cutting people left Mm -hmm. and right um, I mean, jokes in the history about Blink-182, Green Day, you name it. I mean, they all, especially like the Green Day guys, they all kind of grew up in the same scene. Um, you know, Rancid, you name it. Um, they're, they're pretty cutting. Uh, that's, that's their whole stage. That's their whole stage banter is like in between song banter, you know, something's going on. Um, and now it's, you know, 40 years on, they're still doing it. I mean, a band that wow. started out just like, well, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, 40 years on, like that's still their stage banter. They're still just like laying into people 
like, oh, okay, no big deal. And they just kind of deal with it. Um, Mike kind of touts himself as a pretty truthful person. Um, and that gets him into a lot of trouble sometimes. I believe it's alluded to in that interview um, where he's like, hey, you know, I, I kind of tell the truth a little too much. And sometimes it gets me in the trouble. Uh, but he's like, I'd rather tell the truth than, you know, have to create some sort of elaborate lie or anything. Um, and that definitely reflects on the CP. Um, I definitely get it. You know, it, it didn't, it definitely didn't strike me as him going, Hey, you know, a certain group of, you know, less educated people in the U S are just below me. I, I never took that. I always took it as he's making a point to say, there are very educated people out there that are incredibly ignorant to their own mistakes and incredibly ignorant to the effects that they have on everybody else. Uh, and a lot of them typically are politicians. And that's what he's kind of guns a blazing going out with this with this thing. Um, yes, there is a very sarcastic, very tongue in cheek, you know, vibe to this, the lyrical concept of this record, because that's that's how he writes. You know, it's in every in every no effects record. There is a song like that. I mean, there's there's a song on a later album called Creeping Out, uh, Creeping Out Sarah, which is about Tegan and Sarah um, and creeping them out. I mean, there's uh, yep, there's God. I think there is a song on Pump Up the Volume uh, that is. I think I think it's called Bottles to the Ground, and obviously it's about starting a fight, but it's written in like a punk. It's written in like a very like, you know, traditional song structure. Um, I mean, there's a song on, uh, God, I'm going to butcher the title. This is called a white trash, two heaps and a bean. It's uh, El Jefe's first record. Um, and there's a song on there called lies and Luis. That is about a, uh, very, it's about a woman who is unsatisfied in her, her relationship and like goes to the city one day, meets a woman and has a lot of fun. Um, so they're very like, he's very tongue in cheek with a lot of it. Um, but, but he's, he's also pretty dark and there's some later songs that are really rough to listen to by him. There's a lot of it in this song and, you know, we, we cover a lot of different topics. Uh, you mentioned they played it once, you know, or at least the first time in like the first time they played it, it was like 10 years. They also played it at Red Rocks, which you had like shared us, uh, shared with us that video I'd never seen it before. They kind of did a uh, like an S and M type thing, uh, you know. A little. That's funny. The <laughs> what was the? There was like something that he had seen this composer or conductor do that like inspired him to say like, "Hey, we should get this uh, orchestra or this like yeah. little symphony out here and per- have them perform with us for." Uh, the decline live at this event and make it like a pretty special thing. Uh, And then they didn't just like, you know, uh, play the same parts. They like wrote their own parts for the song. I remember him speaking on what he saw the guy do originally that made him interested in doing this. And the guy may have even already created uh, an orchestration of the decline. And that may be what Mike saw or like had heard or something. And he contacted the guys like, Hey, we should do this live. Um, and the orchestrator, I believe his name is Baz, B-A-Z, um, grew up playing in like punk bands and everything. But even he admitted like no effects came to be much later after I was already like a jazz musician. Um, and 
when he met Mike, I believe he told Mike, he's like, yeah, you've already wrote kind of something that's very akin to like a symphony because there's not repeating parts. You just have repeating motifs and themes. Uh, you know, the horns, there's certain melodies that keep coming back into play, slightly altered. Um, there are different, you know, lyrical motifs that come through that you could definitely do with this. And the the recording with the orchestra sounds very Danny Elfman-esque playing behind it. Uh, a lot of xylophone, a lot of stuff like that. Um, I believe there's even a joke like in the live stage banter of like the bad religion have a fucking bassoon like oh, yeah. going on about that. Um, it's really interesting. Um, that, that has also been released on fat records as an additional EP that you can pick up. Uh, it's a cool performance um, to see a band like obviously in their fifties, like going out playing this 18 minute long song they have to practice. Um, yeah, I believe they, I believe they did like a set of like a ri- like classics and then played this or hell, it may have just been this for the set. I mean, when I watched it, it was very tight. Everybody was on, you know, I would assume that to, you know, if you're a classically trained musician, you're going to be yep. show up prepared, you know, as often, uh, the, the kind of mindset, but yeah. Hey, we're going to be playing a punk song. Yeah. <laughs> An 18 minute long punk song for a, a group of just, you know, schlubs. It's <laughs> and, and I think yeah, that's a really that that's a venue I would love to go to. It's a really beautiful venue. Um, and I think Mike actually said the only overdubs he had to do may have been like a couple vocal spots on the recording. Like he's like, Yeah, you're live, like I'm older. He's like, higher elevation changes your vocals. He's like, Yeah, it's part of it. That's kind of what live records are, right? Yeah. There's no all, such thing as a real live record. Yeah, it's all fake. I, yeah, I remember it, finding that out about like Kiss Alive Kiss, or whatever yeah. and all I was going to the Pantera one. Yeah, all of these li- like live records is all bullshit. Yep. They all lied to me. They, I don't even really <laughs> like live records that much. I don't anyway, either. So it's 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 all bogus. I'm like, oh yeah, it's another record. Like, all right, it's just a greatest hits without it being a greatest hits. I got it. You know, I don't want to like gloss over the fact we've talked about the lyrical concepts and the themes of this. This thing is full of bass riffs. Uh, it's definitely. Mike's a bass player and there's some pretty wild bass riffs on this thing. I mean, it opens up with this great kind of fast, hardcore themed distorted bass riff. That's probably just a rat ran straight into like an old Ampeg or something. Sounds, it sounds really good. Everything in the mix cuts in really well. Every instrument has its own place. It all sounds good. Um, The riff that I always remember is I think at the halfway point of the album and it is a wild sounding bass riff. Um, and it's very, if you've ever listened to RKL, um, there's a song called clocked out, I believe that makes me think of that RKL song. Like it is really, really fast shit. Um, and Mike has this really interesting way of playing bass. Uh, he's self-taught. Um, he plays all upstrokes. Like it's, it's no downstrokes. It's all upstrokes the entire time. And I don't know how he does it. Uh, I've attempted to do it just after a while. It's like, I, I can't, my brain is so just like, all right, you know, the Metallica records, it's all going to be downstrokes all the time. My shoulders have the hurt, that sort of thing. But he's like playing with a light pick, um, playing upstrokes and still gets this pretty great sounding tone out of whatever he's doing. Uh, it's also a good thing to point out that he recorded most of the guitars on this thing. Um, basically he vocals, guitars, production, bass, he obviously didn't do drums. Well, actually, I there's there's a cymbal overdub at the end of it where it sounds like this bell kind of going off. 
that's him sitting on top of Eric playing and just hitting the top of the bell of the cymbal. It's like, how do you keep in time? How do you do it? There's also points on the song where they're off time and they did it on purpose. They're like, it just makes sense. Um, I mean, there's vocals that crack on it. That makes sense. That sound good. Um, it's great. You know, it, it's a great EP. Um, and I don't have a whole lot of EPs I'm a big fan of, but this is just one I can put on like in, I actually had to tell myself like in preparation for this, uh, recording that I can't listen to this that much because I've listened to it so much because I, this might be one of my favorite songs of all time, just because it's so well structured, so well written. And it just, it keeps me interested the entire time. It's like watching a, it's like watching a really well done, uh, movie almost like it, the, I I've, completely ignored the fact that the movie is two and a half hours long. Like I'm in it and I go, Oh, that was it. And you're at the end of it. You're like, wow, that is a fantastic piece of art. It's very, I've heard the uh, terms like theatrical or I get, I guess you could say cinematic. I mean, it definitely plays out in a way it, it, it plays like an opera, obviously that we keep talking about, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I didn't never felt like it. There was a lull or I never really felt bored while I listened to it. You know, it's not like my favorite kind of music in the world, but it it was certainly cool to look back on. And, you know, kind of now in the present day, this band is, you know, knocking on the door 40 years and they actually just announced that they were going to be breaking up. Yep. Uh, I, guess I, I guess I want to ask you, you know, what do you think this band's legacy will be? Uh, you know, what? Does it mean? I don't even know exactly why they said they were breaking up. So I don't know if you can shine a light on that, but 40 years calling it quits. I think they originally announced it in like early 2023 because it was going to be 40 years for no effects at that point. And they did a farewell tour, which has taken them, you know, the better part of a year. Uh, They've done select cities throughout the U S I think they're going to do a few more this coming year. And then there might be uh, a couple Canadian dates and maybe a South American date and that's it. And Mike in the more recent interviews has basically stated, that's it. He's like, we're, we're done. We're not playing any more shows. We're done. This isn't, I believe he makes a knock at black Sabbath in the the podcast. He's like, we're not black Sabbath. This isn't going to go on for six years. He's like, we're, we're done. Um, this is it. And it seems like all the other members of the band and some interviews I've seen have, have basically stated the same thing. Like it's done. Um, I'm sure there's many things I couldn't tell you why they're doing it. I mean, when you've been doing something for 40 years, um, I'm sure you get to a point where you're like, what, what more do I have to accomplish? What more do I have to do? Maybe there are other things I want to do. I think Mike in the last 10 years or so has done a play on Broadway. Uh, he just opened up a museum in Las Vegas, the punk rock museum that has been doing really well. Um, he's also got other creative endeavors that he does. I mean, he's got, uh, obviously he's still tied in with fat wreck, Um, and I'm sure he's got other labels and things he's tied into. Um, so who knows, who knows what he's doing? Uh, this is a band I probably, I've never, I know I've never seen, but I will never get a chance to see. And that's, that's fine. Um, you know, but it's, it is weird that I like picked this up much later on, uh, and got into this band just because again, I missed it. You know, I went straight into like as aggressive, as aggressive as you could get with, uh, with like metal and death metal and, and black metal and you name it. And like, I had to come back around to get into some of the more accessible stuff years later of like, Oh, I'm 30 years old. And I'm finally going to listen to like this, you know, kind of melodic punk 
you know, band and listen to them do their thing and really get a kick out of it. Cause it brings in like Mel Brooks and like satire to like punk rock. And I really enjoy that. Uh, any final thoughts on this song? Any final thoughts on the EP, I guess. Uh, I mean, hearing that they had an 18 minute song piqued my interest at first. It, you know, I had a lot of preexisting notions going in of like, what's this thing going to sound like? What is, you know, where could I even begin with an 18 minute long punk track? Is it just going to be noise? Is it going to be, you know, silence for, you know, 12 minutes of it or, you know, what's going on. And I walked into pretty well, a pretty well, a structured masterpiece of sorts from this band. Um, if this band hadn't released anything after the decline, again, they could have called it a day. Uh, I think ultimately this will be the thing that this band gets remembered by the most, uh, when it comes to their recording output. Uh, yep. They've had bigger hits. They've had records that have sold more. They've done so much more, but this will be the thing that they get remembered by because it is so just bizarre for that type of band. Um, if you haven't heard it, listen to it. If you have heard it, subject your friends and make them listen to it. <laughs> yeah, it start a podcast and make them listen to the same thing. <laughs> Swindle, any any final thoughts on the song? There, there, there is one thing. Uh, I was going to say it earlier, but I couldn't really find a place to get in there. Uh, in that interview of the uh, podcast that Mike was on, he said he they were like the day before they were going to release this album. Uh, he like went into the pressing factory and like made them stop making the CDs or whatever. And everybody got mad at him, but that's when they like went and added like the horns and all the shit at the end of the album. Uh, like that, that was so necessary because like three <laughs> through the last three minutes of the song would have been so boring. If yeah. uh, the horn section and like the, Casio keyboard or whatever it was yep. and like the the chime or whatever they're whacking the, at the end the, of the stomping album. yeah yeah and I the forgot the chant. touch on that uh the stomping is from a sex pistol song right yep yep yeah Damn. they just slowed I didn't it down see that that's wild yeah that was a good decision by fat mike to put all that yep. post-production crap in, in it's the song. a dude no yeah, he's that's right like a, that's a really hard thing to say like especially for an 18 minute song we have all these parts like how do you know it's just fucking done? He, like right. to the point where they're pre- yeah. like, they're literally making the CDs and you're like, <laughs> stop the presses. Stop. We got to add the horn section and the stomps in here. So he stops it. And some guy at the label's like, what the fuck are you doing? You can't do this. <laughs> his label, his, his label, his label. Some guy Is says, him what just looking fuck? in a mirror. What the fuck are you doing? I think someone tells him maybe his wife at the time. She's like, it's your label. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. He's like, fuck. All right. But no, Swindle's right. Like if it, if those overdub parts and those layers weren't in there, yeah, the back half of the song would be pretty simple, pretty straightforward. And after 18 minutes, you don't just want simple, right? You know, or 16 minutes in, whatever it is, you need something to kind of carry the song off because it does fade out with these great kind of lyrical back and forths with like uh, Eric Melvin and like Mike screaming these things back and forth. uh, And it just keeps going on. Matter of fact, before we end, I believe the whole back half of the song is a 32 a 32 chord progress or like it's 32 chord progressions with no repeating parts like he does not hit the same chord twice and that is something he does in a lot of his music 
it sounds like, oh yeah, it's an E to an A to a B or whatever it is, but it's like variations of those chords that still makes it in the same key. You're just playing, you know, here's an add nine, here's an add seven, you know, something like that. He wrote his own rainbow connection. (laughs) So proud of him. (laughs) He did. And, and, that shit and has think, a lot. I'm just thinking of all no, the chords. No, no. It's got a ton of chord yeah. changes in it. It absolutely does. And this one does too. And, you know, um, maybe we end it with that. You know, Fat Mike wrote his Rainbow Connection. I'm proud of him. Good job, bud. All Big right. Fat Mike. Now is the time we usually talk about what we've been listening to lately. Um, so what I've been listening to lately is a album called embalmed in decay by the band carnal tomb, uh, released on November 3rd. This is just really good caveman esque death metal. Uh, the bass is really loud in the mix. You can literally hear every single note he's playing. Um, you know, give this a shot. Um, give it a listen. It's fun. You'll enjoy it. If you like bands like gate creeper and like anything that was recorded in Florida in the nineties, you're probably going to enjoy this. I got another death metal track that's out ball and chain by pittsfield mass uh escuela grind fuck putting yeah out a, putting out an ep death metal ep but it's like spelled like death metal uh it'll be out on january 12th through monarch heavy uh they also announced that they will be going on a pretty extensive tour throughout uh, january into february uh with bands like slow pulse uh bonginator frog mallet, you know, just stuff like that. I know they're going to be, they're going to be in, uh, in Chicago on February 8th at Reggie's. So that's pretty cool. Uh, of course I'm not seeing too many, too many stops by y'all, but you know, whatever, maybe it's a trip for you. Uh, Tour, but, touring doesn't exist here. You know, it's like Joseph Merrick down here. Another, another one second. Why are you talking about elephant man so much? Cause the South is all fucked up. Here's the armpit. Here's the middle finger. Here's the toe, you know, Texas is the taint. There's four tracks on this record, this EP. Uh, so we got one already, Ball and Chain, uh, which also has a music video out. And then uh, one of the interesting things that I noticed on here as well is the fourth song on the record is called Meat Magnet. It's going to feature Barney Greenway of Oh, uh, that's going to be fun. Death on it. So definitely looking forward to that. Check out Ball and Chain. My suggestion uh, it comes from my fair city of Louisville, Kentucky, uh, Coliseum. They just released an album called Infinity Shit, uh, <laughs> and they spelled their name without vowels. Yeah. Uh, I It looked like the Patterson person, the Patterson guy uh, who plays guitar and does vocals, also recorded the bass, and they have a drummer on the album, but they said that all three people in the band took part in the album, so I'm not really sure what that's about. But... It's a return to uh, the old Coliseum punk rock style. They recorded two or three, maybe full lengths that um, like post metal, wasn't it? Uh, kind of. It was m- like more songy. They had hooks and shit, but they've gone back now to being punk rock. Get that. G- get that shit out of here. <laughs> get, those, get those hooks out of here. Get, get, that, get that crap out of here. Thank you so much for joining us again this week on Riff Worship. You can follow us for any updates on the show at Distortion891, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We'll be back again next week talking about more riffs for Dylan, Swindle, me. You've been listening to Riff Worship. Bye.